0: Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better future for all. Yes, it's our regular feature, the Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi, there's no doubt, I think you would agree that the biggest. Environmental story of the week was the launch of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC report, which is the third report of their sixth assessment round. So since, I think, 1990 or early 1990s, they've been doing these reports. Uh, I don't think this report got quite as much attention as Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. What did you think of the coverage?
1: Yeah, I agree, Carla. You know, I I think one of the problems about this is each time one of these UN reports comes out, uh, you know, I think to people who aren't close to the details, it probably sounds like they've heard it all before. And that's genuinely because they have. (laughs) And each time, you know, the UN and the scientists try and ramp up and quite rightly so, of course, the kind of emotion about it the language around it and this time they did exactly that uh the words were being used like scandalous naivety whole-scale failure sleepwalking into climate catastrophe this that's not the kind of language you normally get from scientists or indeed from the un secretary general but that's what we're hearing this time around but as that case you say it was very hard for it to cut through and to get that kind of real attention i think in the Mainstream public, uh, because so many other things are going on, and because sadly people they feel they've heard it before. So I think that's what was uh, really challenging this time around.
0: Yeah. Also, there's an element I think of bad timing. The last report that that came out was just before the conflict in the Ukraine. So that you know these stories are are probably getting buried, partially because of timing, partially because of messaging. But I do think the messaging is confusing. Like when I read the report. You know, on one hand, you're hearing Antonio Gutierrez saying it's a file of shame and we've we've failed. And then on the other hand, it's saying we've won last ch- shot and there's all this hope. And and even I find myself too emotionally confused to really know what the take home message is or, you know, what I should do with this information.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, I think the problem is with anything to do with climate change, it is important to hold many different narratives in our head at the same time. And they're all accurate, by the way. Uh, It does seem contradictory, but, you know, that is the nature of the beast, as it were. So, of course, you can look at it. And there's so much to be miserable about. I mean, in 2019, emissions were 12 percent higher globally than they were in 2010. So that's not good. And we're definitely not on track to stabilise global temperature at 1.5 degrees. In fact, it looks like we're heading more towards at least 3.2 degrees, which of course would be catastrophic. Uh, if we get to that. However, as you say, you know the report also pointed out that there are reasons for hope. At least 18 countries have managed to con- continue emissions cuts for more than a decade. The costs of key technologies for decarbonisation have plummeted between 2010 and 2019. For example, unit costs of solar energy fell by 85%, wind energy by 55%, lithium ion batteries used in electric cars and energy storage by 85%. So all that is encouraging. The problem is the reason these two narratives exist at the same time is is we are getting those cuts in in the cost of new technologies and we're getting rapid deployment new technologies, but they're basically making up for what would be new fossil fuel infrastructure uh, rather than actually taking away the old uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. And until we actually start to see some of that old fossil fuel infrastructure closing down, which we are seeing in some bits of the world in some areas, Uh, But unless we start seeing that at scale, we're not going to get the kind of um, uh, ramping up of uh, change that is really needed to tackle this.
0: So this is the end of their their sixth assessment period and presumably it'll be probably another five years or so before they do their their seventh. So, I mean, what do you think we do with this information now that we have it and it's kind of what we're going to be relying on for, I think, the next five years or so?
1: Well, I mean, of course, it just means the things we already know, number one, that we've got to move much, much faster. I mean, I was talking about the quotes and the language this time around. Uh, I think uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, was trying to say, this isn't about taking action next year or next month. It's about doing it now. And uh, we really do need to kind of get on with it and cut those emissions quickly. And I think I think what's interesting about that with the the whole shock of what's happening in Ukraine and how that's causing people to think differently, perhaps about energy. It does play into immediately the kind of thinking about, well, well, how do we change our energy security? And that we've got to move away from fossil fuels. It's not just about trying to get fossil fuels from a different place. We have to be thinking now about actually replacing fossil fuels. Um, but I think the other message that came through really clearly in this was around climate adaptation, um, which, of course, uh, in these kind of reports in the past that have come from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they are focused on climate mitigation. What do we do to, to try and uh, reduce climate change rather than adapting to it? But I think because we largely failed in addressing this, um, there was a much greater a uh, talk about climate adaptation in this report than previously. So, for example, the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization said, we need to pay attention to climate adaptation. Climate change will continue for decades and centuries. Early warning services are in growing need, especially in least developed countries and small island states. So when I think, Carl, what is interesting there, there's almost an uh, implicit uh, acknowledgement there that we failed and we're gonna have to just get ready to deal with some of the implications of this now, as well as trying to cut uh, emissions as fast as possible, but let's also just remember just how how bad we've done on this. Really, um Inga Anderson, the executive director of uh, UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, pointed out the last two decades saw the highest increase in emissions in human history. So, with all that talk over the last two decades about climate change and how serious it is, and how we've got to ramp up efforts. Actually, it's the last two decades that have seen the highest increase in emissions.
0: Yeah, and 30 years of emissions going up instead of down when we've been working on this. But I thought it was interesting that a lot of the solutions to climate change were were also things that would help with air pollution, which is an immediate health problem all over the world, including here in Ireland. So it makes sense that the second news story that really broke this week uh, was on new air pollution guidelines from the World Health Organization or the WHO. So what is the WHO saying about air pollution right now, Craig?
1: Yeah, well, this is sort of shocking in one sense. And uh, as ever with the stories we talk about, cars shocking and not shocking all at the same time. <laughs> um, what the WHO uh, said this week is that now uh, it estimates that the vast majority of people on planet Earth, almost everyone, they say, now live in areas with harmful levels of air pollution that breach their own guidelines as to what they consider as safe. So their official figure is that 99% of the world's population is now affected by air pollution, and that's up from 90% just four years ago. Uh, given that they've moved to more stringent standards, now of course it won't surprise you that that's mostly in cities. And of course, India has nine of the world's ten cities with the worst air pollution caused by a tiny pollution known as PM 2.5. Um, but actually, obviously, some of it is also in the countryside. And, and although the sources of uh, most air pollution comes from the burning of fossil fuels in cars and power plants actually a lot of air pollution does come from farming which is why you do get uh, air pollution in the rural environment environment as well and actually even natural sources like desert sand when these kind of all combine together uh, and indeed with you know cook stoves in 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 developing countries as well actually that results in um, this combination of air pollution and I, I certainly thought it was a really important thing to talk about this week because What I've always found astonishing about air pollution is is it is one of those things that we know what we need to do to solve it. You know, it's actually much easier than, say, trying to tackle climate change. I think you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right to point out that most of the solutions to tackling air pollution are the same as those tackling to climate change. But they are the easiest ones, you know, um, essentially move from burning fossil fuel uh, in cars to electric vehicles, for example, and in power plants as well. They're relatively easy compared to the whole uh, picture of of climate change and yet you know the number of people that this affects is is huge i mean the world health organization estimates it's like one in eight deaths globally that in one way or another are affected by air pollution so i think it's a i've always found it astonishing that it's become one of those things that we've has become so normalized over the last few decades perhaps the last century that we just don't think we have to address it as much as perhaps we should and yet We know we can do it. And the proof of that is actually Beijing, because we've all got, probably everyone has got this image of Beijing being incredibly polluted. But actually, uh, Beijing has done a good job of trying to tidy up uh, and clean up its air over the last few years. So believe it or not, it's now only number 76 in the most polluted mm-hmm. cities globally. So it yeah. does show that, well, that look, things can be Well, I mean,
0: partially because they, they run like a dictatorship. Where they <laughs> so it's a lot easier to make change. But actually, <laughs> in, in Ireland, uh, it, it, you wouldn't think this is an issue. But but actually, we have 1,300 premature deaths a year as a result of the p- particulate matter from the burning of so- solid fuels. So we really just, in general, need to stop burning stuff to deal with this. But I think we're, we're seeing a lot more monitoring, even places like Ireland, where, where maybe this issue wasn't seen as a problem because of our low population density and actually this week good news story the the um, county council in Cork has designated their first clean air zone a road in Cork where they've put lots of monitoring stations and they're they're pe- fully pedestrianizing it to make it a really healthy place for people to live and, and shop and enjoy so I, I I'm starting to see a shift really and maybe people are making the connection that you know this is a toll on our health service and this is resulting in premature deaths and so maybe it's something we should respond to are you seeing the same thing in the UK
1: uh well slowly but surely um i mean you know in the uk it's estimated the government's own figures in the uk estimate that there's fifty thousand people die prematurely mm. because of air pollution in the uk every year uh, and that's a huge number when you think about it i mean i often find myself thinking imagine if it was a a, a foreign invader that was doing that you know we would we mm. act rather differently but yeah. when it's ourselves and our our own cars and our Um, uh, wood-burning stoves or whatever actually we don't react in quite the same way but we are starting to see real actions and I think what's interesting is when you have power devolved to cities and city mayors in particular that often makes it easier for them to take the actions needed introducing congestion zones and so on to make a difference on this For i'd sure. say i'm really pleased to hear what you're saying about cork uh, my family had our holiday in cork last <laughs> summer car as you know and it's just a fantastic city and it is it is absolutely beautiful and it does show that often the best action can happen at that town and city level.
0: Absolutely. Finally, Craig, I was really interested in a story that came out of New York this week where the Department of Environment and Conservation is trying to decide whether to renew an air permit application for a gas power plant that's being used to generate Bitcoin, so the, the cryptocurrency, and that's been getting a lot of attention this week because Russia says they're considering accepting Bitcoin as a payment for oil and gas exports. And, and actually, a report was just released saying that Irish people, followed by uh, people in the UK, are the most crypto curious in the world in terms of their interest in investing in Bitcoin. But this has huge environmental problems. So what are the potential environmental problems associated with these Bitcoin or, or crypto plants?
1: It is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I'm sure people might have picked up on this a little bit over the last few years. But, you know, Bitcoin essentially, when it is, it's called that it's mined. In other words, what actually that you have is you have thousands of computers all lined up, crunching, very complicated algorithms to produce this cryptocurrency. And um, it it is absolutely extraordinary. Some of the figures on this, it's been estimated that uh, around the world, computers operating constantly to create Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Generate the same carbon emissions as the whole of the New Zealand economy. Wow. So 37 megatons. So it just seems, uh, I mean, intuitively, it seems mad, doesn't it? That we, just at the time of trying to tackle climate change uh, and, and get serious about it, actually, we then produce this, this cryptocurrency that involves huge amounts of carbon emissions associated with generating it. And you would have thought, you would hope that uh, actually, well, if you at least, if you're going to create uh, big uh, Bitcoin mines that at least you do it when they can be powered by renewable electric- electricity. But that's not the case, actually. Sadly, a lot of them, including this one that there's this controversy about in New York State, uh, as you say, uh, that is would be uh, fueled by fracked gas. Can you believe? Yeah. So uh, actually, we are seeing you know quite a lot of fossil fuels going into power generation to create Bitcoin and that's a real real problem. Yeah and, and uh, I mean actually this in... this
0: particular plant I should say was a struggling coal plant that operated about 6% of the time uh, before 2014 and then this investment company came and purchased it and began running it 24-7 around the clock to make Bitcoin with 20,000 computers mining this cryptocurrency so actually I, I think you could argue that it's doing more damage as a cryptocurrency plant running 24-7 than it was as a As a coal plant that only ran 6% of the time. And that is really scary because these investors are looking at all of these old coal plants that are starting to shut down as a result of climate action and seeing this as an opportunity. It could really make the climate problem worse, couldn't it?
1: It really could. I mean, I think this definitely needs new attention. I mean, we can all understand that it's easier to change. uh, It's much harder to change or get rid of old infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure, than it is to stop new uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. And I I think, but what we're seeing here at the moment is new infrastructure in the form of Bitcoin supporting the old fossil fuel infrastructure. There's got to be interventions here from policymakers to change this. Otherwise, it just undermines you know, all those other attempts that we're trying to make to tackle climate emergency.
0: For sure. So maybe our Crypto Curious listeners will rethink their investments in Bitcoin. But thanks for the rundown of the weekly big news on the planet, Craig. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week.
1: Thanks. Speak next week.